Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 215. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Bumper show today, as they say. Give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have short fiction by Will Ludwigson. I played Will's Speed of Dreams a few weeks ago. Got a new one out there as well. In Search Of, which is just fantastic. Fact article next is the movie Soundtracks by David Raiklin. Next up is the main fiction and it's by James L. Sutter and it's called Faithful Servants. Next we have Morgan Saletta with his Everything article. Then at the very end, we have a little bit of music tying in this music-themed show. We have Rocket to Earth by No One Zero. How about that? So first up, we will dive into Will Ludwigson's little bit of short fiction there in search of. I'll give you a little heads up. About Will, I mean, I've mentioned this before, but Will's fantasy and horror stories have appeared in Asimov Science Fiction, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, and Weird Tales, among other places. A recent graduate of the Stonecast MFA program at the University of Southern Maine, he teaches creative writing at the University of North Florida. And this is the good bit as well. A collection of his work, In Search of and Others, is appearing next year from Leith Press. You know what? I really kind of, I just dig the way kind of Will writes, you know what I mean? It's like these kind of, it's a quirky little style he's got. 
and I haven't like listened to everything Will's got there, but the way he kind of puts it over, it's just, I love this kind of style of writing, so do enjoy this. Well, I hope you will. So the Starship Sober is very proud to present In Search Of by Will Ludwigson. Your answers, though you might not like them. The universe began 13.7 billion years ago as a singularity of infinite density and temperature. It will expand and fragment until the fragments become singularities of their own and repeat the process. The grand unified theory is a lot closer to its turtles all the way down than scientists guess. The Earth will end with a bang and not a whimper. Life is common in the universe, but intelligent life is not. What little of it exists uses neither radio nor space travel. 4% of Earth's species originated elsewhere, arriving via meteorite to evolve here. No one has ever been abducted by aliens. No dead person has ever communicated with a living one. Ghosts are not the spirits of the dead, but cross-consciousness memories to which sensitive minds have non-chronological access. The few true psychics have this ability, though only 3% of those who claim to be are. John Edward isn't. You are, slightly. The creature in Loch Ness was a plesiosaur, but it died in 1976 and locals concealed the carcass. No feral simian or missing link has ever been photographed. The Mayans died of a pandemic hemorrhagic fever. Atlantis was the island of Crete. All conceptions of God are produced by the limitations of human neuroses. A true holy book could fit on an index card, but most of the words on it haven't been invented yet. Religions are clumsy metaphors for epiphanous experiences, often the result of errant chemicals or electrical impulses. Sometimes, though, they illuminate the truth, just as parallax calculates the distance to the stars. Shakespeare's audiences wrote all the plays of Shakespeare. Their reactions shaped what actors remembered in each successive performance until they were finally written down. The Voynich Manuscript was an opium addict's dream journal. Lizzie Borden did it, and her sister knew. Georg Jaffe a Jewish immigrant tailor living in London's East End, performed the killings ascribed to Jack the Ripper before lapsing into gibbering mental incompetence and dying of syphilis. Bruno Hauptmann didn't kidnap Charles Lindbergh Jr. alone, but his accomplice had long since died when he went to trial. Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac. Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan lived four days on Gardner Island after ditching their plane there, eventually dying of thirst and exposure. U-869 was attempting to defect to the United States in February 1945 when it was sunk by U-857 off the coast of New Jersey. Marilyn Monroe died of an accidental reaction between medications prescribed by two different doctors. D.B. Cooper's skull lies beneath seven feet of leaves and loam in a bear cave in the Cascades, along with $140,000 of his ransom money. British troops hid half a million pounds of bullion in the Oak Island Money Pit in 1779 and recovered it in 1781. Their commander ordered the pit restored as a punishment to traitorous colonial wretches too greedy to pay his majesty's due. Of course, O.J. did it. President Kennedy was shot non-fatally by Lee Harvey Oswald, but then killed accidentally by a Secret Service agent. Flushed with adrenaline, the agent slipped off the curb while rushing to the limousine with his weapon drawn. Because Oswald fired the initiating shot, the FBI, CIA, and Treasury Department felt justified in leading all investigations to him. After the September 11th attacks, Al-Qaeda never again had the capability to execute an attack of similar magnitude. Osama bin Laden was horribly disfigured by a thermobaric bomb blast at Tora Bora in late 2001. Two and a half million years ago, one of your ancestors invented the spoon. You had a relative who fought at Actium. 
Your great-great-grandmother shook Abraham Lincoln's hand and reported it was clammy. Bernard Therian remembered the chocolate bar your grandfather gave him in Paris on August 29, 1944, as the best he tasted all his life. Your parents did indeed meet at church, but only after your father locked your mother in the Sunday school room and charged her a kiss to let her escape. Years later, your mother only relented to his charms for rides along the seashore in his new white M.G. Your father wanted to be an architect, but stopped trying after a rejection from the Rhode Island School of Design. He majored in sociology instead because everybody was hoping to change the world back then. He drew houses on napkins the rest of his life. Your mother wanted to be a botanist, but flunked organic chemistry. Neither wanted children. Teresa never wanted to be your big sister, and she resented your parents for making her raise you. Once while babysitting, she prayed tearfully that you'd just die. She felt terrible about it for the rest of her life. Buddy forgave you for yanking his ears that time in the pool. A boy named Damon Phillips stole your bicycle in the fourth grade, but he took better care of it. The angry old man living across the street wasn't a Nazi, but a Russian. He did indeed poison Pippi for sniffing around in his garden, though. The fat girl at your summer camp killed herself the next fall. Your parents knew that you borrowed the magazines they kept under their bed. Heather Duncan would certainly have gone to the ninth grade dance with you. That gangly hick with the bad mustache who spit tobacco on you at the pep rally is now on death row. You could have gotten another hundred points on the SAT if your mother had breastfed you in your infancy. Your guidance counselor confused you with another student when she advised you to work toward an exciting career in computers. You would have been terrible at it if you'd tried. Careers for which you were better suited were counselor, attorney, or teacher. Teresa would have also been an excellent teacher. Her last memories were of spooking her little brother while watching episodes of In Search Of together in the basement. Your teachers didn't know how to help you, after. Mr. Bailey didn't realize that the D in physics would ruin your university scholarship. Dean Findlay thought a military school would help, but your parents couldn't afford it. Everybody knew you broke the office windows. Meeting Lieutenant Vercheck at the career fair saved your life. Over the course of your career in homicide, your work resulted in the arrests of 620 people. 254 were guilty but exonerated. 96 were innocent but convicted anyway. Of those, 44 were guilty of other crimes. Only 31% served their entire terms in prison. Of those released, more than half killed again. Jacques Herman didn't kill those girls. You were right that Vernon Jean Johnson hid Sandy Berenson within view of the nursery window, her body was floating about 300 yards away in an old septic tank, and finding it would have clinched the case. Irvin Mitchell kept the photos of his rapes under the carpet in his father's donut truck, for which you never got a warrant. Those garbled tapes discovered in Francis Schenck's cabin were recordings of his victims' tortured screams for his later fantasies. Gary Thornton still wants to eat you. You arrested more black men than any other race or gender, but you couldn't help it. Two people vowed to kill you over the course of your life. Neither could have done it. Francis Schenck's daughter was a terrible shot, and Gavin Drummond forgot after the third grade. Sharon's parents never liked you as much as they did her last boyfriend. They took them both to dinner when you divorced. She is happy now, but she doesn't regret marrying you. Sometimes she misses those lazy summer naps and midnight trips to Krispy Kreme. Your daughter lost her virginity in your favorite chair with that dorky drum major. She made him wear his hat. Your boss's boss thinks your last name is Gilbert. That UFO you saw in the mountains was a Russian satellite burning up on re-entry. The creepy man you saw at Disney World wasn't a child molester. 
The man at whom you shot the bird for cutting you off in traffic on December 16th, 1996, was on the way to his wedding. The dent in your rear fender from August 2001 was inflicted by an uninsured college student who couldn't afford to repair the damage. Six times in your life you have eaten fast food tainted with the body fluids of bitter service employees. Sixteen across on the USA Today crossword puzzle for August 3rd, 1991 was Ibix. All your mother really wanted for Christmas was a subscription to Vanity Fair instead of all those cheese platters. You routinely used the word flammable when you meant to say inflammable. No one could ever love you enough, but Jennifer Harris came the closest. She still thinks about you and your kiss beneath the pier on prom night. Your greatest strength is your desire to ask all the big questions. Your greatest weakness is your fear of asking the little ones. Teresa lies face down in a grave near the 165-mile marker on Interstate 95 in South Carolina. Her murderer, a councilman for nearby Florence, chuckles when he drives his Cadillac Escalade past her grave. His only motive was convenience, and there was no way to catch him. Nothing you've done would disappoint her. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Will Ludwigson. Hopefully, we'll try and get a try and sneak a few more little one of those little vinaigrettes off. Will I really like to say I really do like them. Next up is our David Reagan with his movie soundtrack. David, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction and fantasy music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. We make it all possible for you to enjoy. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This week, we're going to listen to the secrets behind a great sci-fi epic. It won Hugo, Nebula, Saturn, and Emmy Awards, a truly innovative show with a huge story arc. It was often called a novel for television. It was both great television and great science fiction. It had more digital special effects, more complex storylines, and more innovative music than any TV show had ever had before. It's Babylon 5. It was on for five seasons, had a spin-off, also seven movies. The scripts themselves are popular in addition to 30 soundtrack releases. We're only going to explore a tiny segment of the Babylon 5 universe the show was created and produced by J. Michael Straczynski and starred Bruce Boxleitner. They had the goal of improving with every show, and they succeeded. Thanks to one of our wonderful listeners, Ian, for suggesting this week's show, The Music of Babylon 5. Composed by Christopher Frankie. Christopher, or Chris, has a lifelong love of classical music in addition to pop, rock, electronica. He brought all of those influences together and more for the score to Babylon 5. We have... Rock, Electronica, Avant-Garde Symphonic, Romantic Symphonic, Ethnic Music, Chorus, Sound Effects and Sound Design. It all comes together in this soundtrack. It really was the most advanced and sophisticated soundtrack music and sound design. It fit perfectly. Let's listen to the main title from Babylon 5, Season 1.
rousing theme music from Babylon 5 Season 1. As the series evolved, so too did the theme songs, reflecting the dramatic arc of the story. For example, by Season 3, the theme music had become more dissonant and aggressive to reflect the greater dramatic conflicts in Season 3. One element that all the theme songs have in common is it's in two sections. The first is more space music, ambient, has a kind of um, thoughtful quality to it. And then this transforms into aggressive, martial action music. Also, the melody becomes more developed as we go through the different seasons. Let's take a listen to Babylon 5, the theme song, Season 5. theme song from Babylon 5, Season 5. Quite a contrast from the first season. I love the melody in this one the best. It's also quite innovative to have a theme song that changes from season to season and sometimes even episode to episode. Let's take a listen to how we get into an episode. There are 30 soundtrack releases on this series, and of course we are only just going to touch the surface of it, but there's several complete scores where we can actually hear the music as it was experienced in each episode, as well as some compilation suites that are among the best things that Chris Frankie ever did. Here's the opening music for The Long Night. It's a futuristic march titled Giants in the Playground.
Giants in the Playground from The Long Night, a Babylon 5 episode. Now let's hear another signature sound from the series. It's a blend of live percussion and rhythm synthesizer. It creates a kind of unique action vibe that's been imitated many times since, but here it's fresh and new. high-tech action theme from Babylon 5. Now let's hear the tragic confrontation music from the big battle in Severed Dreams. This is where the Babylon 5 colony has to confront the Earth space fleet. was the big battle from the Hugo Award-winning Severed Dreams episode of Babylon 5. It sounds like a rock opera there. There's a chorus, an orchestra, electric guitars, drum, electronics, special effects. Maybe for a big movie, sure, or for an auditorium rock concert. But how do you do that for a weekly TV series? It turns out that Chris Frankie has friends in Berlin. He grew up there and developed connections with the classical music community. He actually founded the Berlin Symphonic Film Orchestra and worked with technologists to develop a system for recording the orchestra in Berlin and then transmitting it in high definition over cable to his studio in Los Angeles. This was back in the 1990s. He was able to do this on a weekly basis and record the rock elements, you know, the guitar, drums, and electronics here in L.A. and mix it with the orchestra and have it done every week. A bit of tech food to give the show an epic scope. Now let's take a listen to Sheridan's theme. One of the great things about the series is how the characters would develop, change over the course of a season, and over the course of the whole series, they would change their beliefs, their powers, who they were friends with, and the central character was Captain Sheridan. His theme actually started out as just a couple of notes, but over the course it developed into this ascending heroic theme that had a a deep philosophical element, too. Let's listen to Sheridan's theme.
an excerpt from Sheridan's theme. Now let's listen to one of the great heroic themes for a group called the Rangers, an elite interstellar alien fighting force that would come to the rescue of other civilizations. And in this case, they actually got their own movie called The Legend of the Rangers. It was a spin-off and very entertaining, and here's their theme. Rangers Battle Theme from Babylon 5, Legend of the Rangers. Now let's hear what Christopher Frankie says about how he got started in film music. Well, um, I spent 20 years like really trying to be myself. That was probably the biggest challenge, to try music which is original. So I started really out as a drummer and being classically trained, but I played also jazz, but I also found there must be something new and original in music. And that, I think, was appealing for directors and producers in film music. They always are on the look for something new to express feelings. That's Chris Frankie talking about his approach to music. He's frequently described himself as a sonic painter, that he treats music and sound like a painter or sculpture would in their media. And you can sure hear those great splashes of orchestral synthetic and percussive textures that really bring a new level of emotion to the music. You can also kind of sit back and listen to it like you would a uh, electronica or new age music album, especially in the extended suites. It's common for composers to take the cues from a, a movie or TV show or a game and weave them together into a more satisfying extended listening experience. And in addition to all the episodes, there's also three CDs, including the best of uh, Babylon 5 and Messages from Earth. Those are wonderful listening experiences, and they have um, a special attraction because along with uh, Henry Mancini and Danny Elfman, Christopher Frankie actually had a significant career as a recording artist before he went into films. Beginning with the second season and continuing through the third, fourth, and fifth, along with several of the TV films, you have one of the great science fiction epics that span a million years of human evolution and interaction with all manner of intergalactic civilizations. Babylon 5 has some of the best science fiction that you'll ever see, as well as visionary special effects and a soundtrack to match. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Contact me, David Raikland, at cinematic 
music1 at gmail.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. There you go. That just gets better and better. David, thank you so much. Going to try and organise a little something special with David, with the you know the kind of holodeck workshops and everything like that. So stay tuned for information on that. Next up is Main Fiction, and it comes by a writer called James L. Sutter. This story is entitled Faithful Servants. Jim seems a really kind of interesting guy. He's editor at Puzzle Books. Hopefully that's how you pronounce it. But he's also a former member of a metal band that toured nationally as well. Go on there, James. This story is set in the Pathfinder Tales. This is a collection of stories that Pazio are producing. James has a new novel out. And it's called Pathfinder Tales, Death's Heretic. And like I say, this story belongs in that universe as well. Do let us know what you think about this story. And do pop over. I'll put a link on to Pazio's published work. All their stuff there. Because also, they have like these role-playing games as well, which is kind of set in this universe as well. So I would really be interested in to, to kind of what you make of all these tie-ins. Do you like them? You know, is it nice? This story's fantastic. I was put onto this writer by John Joseph Adams. Now, if he's kind of you know, singing whistles and bells about the guy. You know, the guy is a good writer. This story is narrated by our good friend, Jonathan Dans. Jonathan has kindly, you know, he always came over. Tony, I'd be interested in narrating. And before long, he's just story after story. Jonathan, thank you so much. I'll put a link on Jonathan's site. Amazing work, Jonathan. Thank you. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Faithful Servants by James L. Sutter. Chapter 1. Down at the Clever Endeavor The Clever Endeavor wasn't the best bar on Axis, nor was it the cleanest, or the cheapest, and definitely not the friendliest. It was a bar you went to when you didn't want to be seen. Not that there weren't always people there. The place had a pretty decent crowd of regulars, and new folks stumbled in from time to time as situations warranted. But everyone there knew the first rule— of the clever endeavor. Even if you saw someone you recognized there, you didn't see them. Which is why it was so immediately obvious that Salim was being followed. The bar was roughly half full, which meant that it was as full as it ever got. Wrought iron lanterns filled not with flickering flame, but with smooth phosphorescence, glowed softly between tables, casting enough light to see by, but not so much as to make anyone feel exposed. The bar's shape was different than most, with a wide open center and tables positioned around the twisting outer wall, each set in its own scalloped hollow. It was hardly the best use of space, but the sort of folk that frequented the clever endeavor appreciated the fact that the odd layout gave every table a wall to put one's back to, plus a clear view of the entrance and the stairs leading up to the street. Directly across from the doorway stood a long wooden bar without any stools and behind it lurked a rack of hundreds of bottles of all shapes and sizes, some clear, some opaque, and some jumping and jittering of their own accord. The bar's unusual shape, however, was nothing compared to its clientele. As far as Salim could tell, and such things weren't always obvious, he was the only human present. To his right, a cluster of hive people, 
This particular group composed almost entirely of the flying variety, which resembled seven-foot-tall, black-shelled wasps, used deft proboscises to scrape thick red fluid from long, fluted glasses. Thanks to their telepathy, the only sound from their alcove was the steady brush of feathery appendages on crystal. Yet the way they occasionally whirred their wings or crooked their limbs suggested an argument, or as close to an argument as creatures with a hive mind ever got. To Salim's left, several of the plane's native axiomites were going over documents with a winged, green-skinned man that Salim had pegged as an angel, hammering out some sort of agreement. Each time one of the elf-like axiomites moved to point out a particular clause, the illusion of its flesh broke and scattered, revealing the cloud of glowing symbols that was its true form. Across the room, another axiomite pulled her companion, one of the fox-headed vulpinals, as deep into the shadows of her alcove as she could. Selim couldn't say whether the gesture was one of modesty or fear of judgment by her fellows, but it had little effect either way. Each time the foxman touched the flawless skin of her thigh, a blaze of runes drifted up from the caress like golden dust, broadcasting her excitement to the room. The axiomites were living mathematical abstractions, but apparently even abstractions had needs. And those were just the groups. Far more common in the clever endeavor were the singletons, folks who didn't care to bring companions and were even less interested in making new ones. These solitary drinkers were scattered around the place, each lost in his or her own thoughts. A flame-haired Efreet, the half-breed offspring of some genie and immortal, sat nursing a brass goblet at one of the flame-retardant tables. Beyond him, a contract devil with a pointed beard and wire-rimmed spectacles, which were almost certainly just for show, sorted through a pile of scrolls. Closest to the bar was a blurry, vaguely humanoid distortion in the air which Salim took to be one of the Shea, the aristocratic residents of the Shadow Plane. The Shadow People had long ago traded physical forms for regions of coherent probability and had been insufferably smug about it ever since. In other words, nothing out of the ordinary. Salim shifted so that his back was to his uninvited guest. He leaned over the table, propping his head on his hand and looking down as if staring into his drink. In reality, it was the glass that concerned him. In its warped reflection, the rest of the room behind him was clearly visible. The solitary axiomite, two tables down, was staring at him. Not the careful peripheral vision study of someone used to the clever endeavor's rules. The eyes fixed on Salim's back were blatant in their gaze, though the man's nondescript robes, pointed ears, and inhumanly perfect features were no different from any of a thousand other axiomites, a large rune that glimmered with its own light sat between his eyebrows. A glowing forehead tattoo was an interesting choice for someone trying to pass unnoticed. But then, this was Axis. As it was, the rune told Salim nothing, except that he'd never seen the man before. Salim sat down his glass and looked to the bartender. Lehan was standing in his usual place behind the counter, a rag over one narrow shoulder and a vacant expression on his face as he stared off into the distance. As Salim's hand twitched up in the three-fingered signal, however, the barman's eyes snapped into focus. He met Salim's gaze and nodded slightly. Good. Placing one hand on the battered surface of the table, Salim shoved himself to his feet. He stood there for a moment, wobbling slightly, as if from too much drink then began weaving his way toward the back of the establishment. Past the bar, he turned left and staggered into the hallway leading to the Jakes. 
As soon as he was around the corner and out of sight of the rest of the bar, Salim flattened himself against the near wall, willing his black robes to blend into the shadows. His right hand crept to the twisted hilt of his sword, then moved away. Lahan wouldn't want any blood if he could help it. Salim waited. The Axiomite came around the corner. Salim sprang, one hand wrapping around the man's neck, the other forearm hitting sideways across his chest. Salim slammed into his follower, jamming him up against the far wall of the hallway. Instead of flying apart into a cloud of symbols, the man hit the bricks with a meaty slap. Not a true Axiomite, then. A disguise. The fake Axiomite's mouth opened, and Salim squeezed his windpipe shut before he could make a sound. A hand came up, crabbing toward the man's chest, and Salim batted it away easily. Searching within his opponent's tunic, he found the hard knot of the pendant the man had been reaching for. Salim closed his hand around it and pulled, snapping the thong easily. The man shifted. Where one moment Salim had been holding an Axiomite, now he was holding something else entirely. Gone were the Axiomite's lithe limbs, replaced by green scales and clawed three-fingered hands. A pair of stumpy wings, ludicrously small for such a large creature, fluttered ineffectually from slits in the shirt's shoulders. The biggest difference, however, was the head, a cross between dinosaur and the long, toothy grin of a dolphin. The creature's new face rose on a serpentine neck that was suddenly several feet longer than it had been. The glowing rune that had emblazoned the man's forehead was still there, but now it sat between two eyebrow ridges of thick horn. A nice trick, but it made little difference. Salim choked up on the ludicrous neck until his fist rested just beneath the overlong snout, then pulled the head back down to eye level. What are you? he asked, loosening his hold on the creature's windpipe. The creature coughed and sputtered. I... I don't... Salim squeezed a warning. You don't know? I find that unlikely. The creature shook its head, gasping, and tried again. This time it managed to rasp out a single word. Eidolon. An Eidolon. Interesting. That explained the glowing tattoo. Eidolons were created creatures, and the rune would undoubtedly be a sign of its master. The thought of a third party made Salim suddenly aware that his back was exposed, and he dragged the creature farther down the hall toward the privies. He trusted Lahan to give him a signal if someone else came their direction, but there was no guarantee that the Eidolon summoner couldn't turn invisible. Who do you work for, Salim demanded, and why is he looking for me? The creature shook its head again. Though Salim still had it pressed up against the wall, he could feel its body relax. He's not. I came on my own. That didn't make sense. Eidolons didn't do anything without their master's consent, but Selim left it alone for the time being. He was starting to get irritated. Before he could ask another question, the Eidolon answered it. Sayanin told me you could help me. Sayanin. The name was like magic. As soon as Selim heard it, everything became clear. He sighed and released the creature, stepping back as it stretched out its serpentine neck curling and corkscrewing it to work out kinks. So the angel sent you. The creature nodded, a more expressive move than any human could hope to make. He told me how to find you. Of course he did. Salim's black-winged chaperone was fond of jokes. Never mind that the angel's sense of humor had nearly gotten this particular emissary killed. What did a single life matter to a herald of the death goddess? Salim turned back toward the bar, motioning for the snake man to follow. Come on. So you'll help me? The Eidolon asked. 
Its muzzle was still frozen in the idiot's smile that seemed more appropriate now than when it was just a breath away from being choked to death. I didn't say that, Salim said. First, we'll talk, but not here. He glanced over his shoulder. Now are you coming, or aren't you? Chapter 2 A Walk in the Park So talk. The two men for Salim had returned the Eidolon's amulet, and the snake man once more looked like an axiomite, walked shoulder to shoulder through one of Axis's many parks. To either side of the cobblestone path, trees and bushes of a hundred different varieties stood in a riot of color, each with a neat little placard giving its name and world of origin. Several were surrounded by decorative fences, and one of these quarantined plants shook and hooted as the pair passed by, its spherical fruit opening to reveal sucking lamprey mouths. My name is Connell, the Eidolon said. My master is Gatis Mirasoy, of the nation of Ustalav. More than thirty years ago, he called me forth from the ether of the Cerulean void and gave me form, shaping me into his constant companion. Salim nodded. He didn't know much about the practices of the so-called summoners, but he knew that the spirits they used in their magical creations were drawn from the outer planes. They weren't true souls, otherwise his own master, Phrasma, the death goddess, would have something to say about the poaching. But they were close enough to provide the necessary animus. If Connell were a product of the chaotic maelstrom, then it explained his appearance and the disguising amulet. The serpentine proteans, which were native to that plane, were despised everywhere, but Axis had been at war with them since the universe began. All of these thoughts passed by in the time it took Connell to draw breath and continue. For three decades I served my master faithfully, protecting him from enemies, researching incantations, and managing his household affairs. He made this amulet specifically for me, so that I might treat with local villagers on his behalf without unduly alarming them. One slender axiomite hand came up to caress the object, where it hung on its repaired leather thong. Sometimes, perhaps once every few years, his research would take us beyond the manor, to some forgotten library or dusty tomb where valuable knowledge lay languishing, waiting for the master to rescue it. It was on one of these excursions that he found the... the crown. The Eidolon's voice caught, and for a moment he was silent. Crown? Selim prompted. It's terrible, the Eidolon wailed, then reined himself back to a more reasonable volume. We found it in the burial chamber of Arrakix, the ghoul-handed. The master had brought us there in search of an ancient tapestry, but as soon as he saw the crown, all thought of the original mission went out the window, and he had to have it. It's a sick thing, an evil thing. A twisted band of iron with thorns that jut out in all directions, even back into the wearer's scalp. The whole thing has a weird, slick feeling to it, not like iron at all, but like oiled or decomposing flesh. And when the thorns prick you, the blood never drips. The thorns suck it up. I hate it. With this last pronouncement, a single tear welled up and rolled down the Eidolon's disguised nose, dropping to the dirt. After the master put it on, he changed. Before, he'd been a quiet man, and stern as any good master, but not without a sense of humor. After that, he became something else. 
he lost all interest in summoning lesser servants from distant plains, which before had been his greatest joy, and even quit experimenting with my form. Instead, all he wanted to do was research death. He became obsessed with creating undead things, from rat skeletons and dog zombies to more substantial works. Connell paused, embarrassed. I dug up graves and brought him the remains of the townsfolk. He said we were just borrowing them. Right. Connell shrugged, helpless. He was my master. If he wanted to study necromancy, that was his prerogative. An Eidolon doesn't question. Salim nodded, but trained ears had caught the verb tense. Was... All at once the Eidolon's composure broke, and the face he turned to Salim was a caricature of anguish. He sent me away, Connell whispered. His tone made it sound like a death sentence. In all my life I had never been more than a mile from his side, but he had changed so much. He had never been over-fond of travel, but now he never left the manor. He quit eating hardly at all, and would go for days without sleep. He ignored the clean clothes I left out for him. He tore down the shrine to the magic god Nethys and built a new one to Ergothoa, the pallid princess. The old one was wood and paper, beautifully made. This one was made of parts from his experiments. Salim had seen plenty of such shrines and could well imagine the decomposing limbs and reanimating scramblings it entailed. The pallid princess was a sick bitch and made Salim's own goddess look downright warm in comparison. Where Phrasma was, for all her faults, at least even-handed and devoted to perpetuating natural cycles, Orgothoa was devoted to undeath and gluttony, her necromancers filling the world with perverse beings that refused to die. Needless to say, the two ladies didn't get along. You said he sent you away. Connell wrapped thin arms around himself. It was that stupid crown. I know it was. After a while, he didn't even take it off to sleep and didn't notice when the wounds from the thorns got infected. I tried to take it off of him once, just for a minute to clean them out, and he threw me halfway across the room, and that was when he said he didn't need me anymore. Another slow tear. That that he had plenty of new servants, better ones. And then he cast a spell, and I was somewhere else. The Eidolon went silent, and Salim gave him his space, recognizing in the set of his shoulders how hard this must be for him. After a moment, Connell continued, He'd sent me back to the Maelstrom, the chaos plane he'd drawn me from, except it didn't feel like home anymore. I was awkward and lonely, and everything I met was either terrified of me or trying to eat me. But worse, I could still feel him. My master. The threat was faint, so faint, but I could still feel him. The Eidolon pointed to the rune on his forehead. I'm still my master's creature. That's when I realized how much danger he was in. He had his undead things, but they were still weak, and sooner or later, someone was going to get fed up with the grave robbing and try to do something about it, and I wouldn't be there to protect him. 
Selim was starting to get tired of the Eidolon's puppy-like devotion. He attempted to hurry the story along. And so, so I went to see Verasma. Selim stopped walking so abruptly that Connell almost tripped and fell over onto a flower whose blossoms were shaped like tethered hummingbirds, petal wings buzzing frantically to pull them away from the clumsy Eidolon. You went to the boneyard? Perhaps Selim had underestimated the creature. Though the goddess of death wasn't the sort to slay anyone out of hand, quite the opposite, in fact. There were plenty of other beings around the Grey Lady's realm who were less discriminating, and the journey there was hardly easy. It took a while, the Eidolon agreed, but I got there eventually. Some nice crow vulture things in masks led me in and showed me to one of her servants, a black-winged angel called Sayanan. I think you know him? You could say that, Salim said wryly, in the same sense that you know your master, he thought, just without the hopeless love. But he didn't bother confusing the Eidolon with his own problems. He was very nice, Connell said. I simply explained the situation as best I could, and he agreed that it would be in Farasma's interest to help me. Here the Eidolon grinned. And despite the amulet's illusion, Salim could easily imagine the serpentine smile beneath it. See, it's not just the necromancy. I know the goddess hates undead, but that problem will take care of itself when someone eventually comes along and kills him. The real issue is the crown. It's what changed him and made him do all these evil things. I'm positive. And if it's the crown, that means it's not his fault. And if it's not his fault, here the Eidolon raised a triumphant finger, then it shouldn't affect the final judgment of his soul. It's a tricky situation. If my master dies while the crown's magic is making him do bad things, does that count against him? Does his soul go to Urgothoa or to Nethys? At the very least, it seems like a long and complicated judgment is in order. Now Salim understood. And Sayanin sent you to me. Connell nodded enthusiastically. He agreed that such a judgment would be needlessly complicated and take up the goddess's valuable time, and that the best thing to do was remove the cursed crown and let my master's soul cleanse itself. Then he gave me your description and the name of a bar and transported me to Axis. Of course he did. Selim had to admit the Eidolon's logic was sound, and it would be just like Sayanin to send Selim on a job that was... In essence, missionary work, soul-saving, that would tickle the angel's sense of irony. So, will you do it? the Eidolon asked eagerly. Will you help me help my master? As if he had a choice. Eustilov, you said? Aiton's Field, a village near Cavapesta. Selim reached into his robes and produced an amulet of his own. The size of his thumb, the stone was a perfect, lightless black, save for an iridescent spiral that seemed to shimmer and move of its own accord. Cupping the stone in one hand, he offered the other to Connell. Let's go, then. The Eidolon took it. The world twisted. Chapter 3 The Penitent Man There was the usual moment 
darkness and cold, the terrible feeling of being drawn through space like a fish on a line, and then the light was back and the amulet deposited them safely, right in the middle of an angry mob. Selim looked quickly at Connell, but the Eidolon was already holding his own pendant. Before Selim could say anything, the Eidolon's disguise as an axiomite melted into something less suspicious. The pointed ears were still there, but shorter. Gone was the inhumanly perfect skin, replaced by a moonscape of old pockmarks. The cowl of the robe he wore, now old and tattered, stained as much by the road as any dye, came up to cover the glowing forehead rune. It was a good job. The peasant closest to the new arrivals blinked, peered at the two of them as if he was trying to remember something, then visibly gave up and returned his attention to the shouting man at the front. They were in the central green of a modest town, a ring of shops and public houses encircling a muddy patch of grass, long since chewed into submission by the hooves and jaws of livestock. Beyond, Selim recognized the dark and craggy peaks of the hungry mountains, rising ominously on all sides. Even now, at midday, the fog that shrouded their dark forests was thick, and moved in strange ways just beyond the valley's last farmsteads. The mob was barely worthy of the name, perhaps forty men and women in varying states of disrepair, yet Salim had seen such groups before. The deciding factor for mobs wasn't in their muscles or their makeshift weapons, but in their eyes. These folk were afraid, and where there was enough fear, something could break and turn even the most timid housewife into a killer. The man trying to catalyze that change stood at the focal point of the loose semicircle, perched precariously on an overturned wheelbarrow. He was middle-aged and almost completely bald, with only a few wisps of white hair scrambling to cling to and cover his shining pate. From beneath the luminous black robes, similar to Selim's own, poked stick-thin arms, gesticulating wildly. At his throat hung a large silver spiral on a chain, the holy symbol of Verasma. Too long have we suffered the monster to remain in our midst, the priest cried. Far too long. You, Silva, he pointed at one of the women near the front. Was not your husband's grave torn up just weeks after his passing? And you, Tam, this time a fat man in a flower-stained apron. Your uncle's grave as well. No wolf digs so deep or so thoroughly. He returned to addressing the whole crowd. Suffering is our lot. Yet that doesn't mean the goddess desires us to lie down and let monsters roam the night, taking our loved ones. As your priest, I should be leading you, yet I am old, and my hands shake with the palsy. He raised the offending appendages high. Thus I must pass the burden to my son, Sir Personov. It is he who will lead you to glory. The crowd shifted slightly and Selim glimpsed the figure that stood at the old priest's knee. The plates of its armor were all in black and silver, the chest embossed with Phrasma's spiral, and a businesslike bucket of a helm obscured the face. At the figure's waist rested a long sword in a matching scabbard, all in all a suitably imposing sight, yet something about the way the warrior stood gave Selim pause. "'When?' a voice from the crowd cried. At dawn, the priest said, Mirasoy and his creatures are things of darkness. We will bring them the cleansing light. That's my master, Connell hissed, and Salim tapped his arm to quiet him. The crowd shouted its ragged approval. 
and then the church bells began chiming. In twos and threes, the people shuffled off to be about their errands, or perhaps just to rest up before the lynching. The priest had stepped down from his wheelbarrow and was talking with the knight. Salim approached. "'Excuse me, Father. May I have a word?' The priest turned. Above his beak of a nose, hard little rat eyes crawled up and down Salim's length, taking in the black robes and sun-darkened skin, the short beard and strangely melted-looking sword hilt. His eyes lit upon the amulet, which Salim had left hanging prominently against his chest, and the hard mouth softened almost imperceptibly. "'A fellow clergyman?' "'Something like that.' Salim drew the spiral of phrasma in the air between them. "'Yet not from around here.' Salim's southern skin, so much darker than the sickly pale Eustalovs, kept the words from being a question. "'No,' Salim agreed. "'My companion and I have traveled far to offer our assistance. "'It seems others in the church have learned of your situation.' "'Hmm,' the priest said." sound that wasn't altogether pleased. Very well, then. My name is Father Adabold, and this is Sir Persinov. My rectory is just over there. Please allow me to welcome you properly. Without bothering to wait for a reply, the man turned and began stalking toward a little house attached to the church. The armored warrior just behind him, Salim and Connell, followed. The house might better have been called a cell. Though the walls were still painted white, They'd clearly been neglected for some time. The outlines of less faded regions suggested that, at one point, there had been more furniture in here. A bureau, a couch, yet now the room contained only a stove, a cupboard, the roughest of wooden tables, and two chairs. Salim accepted the priest's invitation and sat in the nearer chair, then immediately wished he hadn't. He'd interrogated men in more comfortable chairs than this. Father Adebold took the opposite chair, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Connell remained standing next to the door while the armored figure took up a respectful position behind the priest's left shoulder. For the first time, the metal mountain spoke. Duh. May I? 
Yes, fine. The priest waved a hand. With an audible sigh of relief, the warrior removed his gauntlets, then reached up and pulled off his helmet. It was a boy, brown-haired and skinny. His bobbing larynx didn't even come close to touching the steel gorget meant to protect his throat. Selim bet that if he struck the breastplate, the teenager would rattle around inside the armor like the clapper in a bell. The old man spoke first. "'You're not a priest,' he said bluntly. "'The sword tells me that much. So what are you?' "'A hunter,' Selim said. "'A problem-solver for the church, specializing in the sort of thing you now face. Or have I heard wrong? It's undead creations that your people fear, is it not?' The priest grunted. "'Indeed.' Reluctantly, he got to his feet and went to the cupboard. He returned with two cups of water and a cob of bread, which he set between them. Please, he said, gesturing. Eat. Selim tore off a chunk of bread and bit into it. It was hard and old, but blessedly weevil-free. I'd apologize for not offering better fare, the old man continued, not sounding the least bit apologetic. We of the Cavapestan branch don't believe in southern niceties. Aha. Suddenly both the ostentatiously poor hospitality and the deliberately uncomfortable furniture made more sense. Selim's eyes twitched toward the man's sleeves, which had fallen back when he proffered the food. The priest caught the look and deliberately pulled the cloth back down, but not before Selim caught the telltale lines of dozens of thin white scars on his forearms. So, you follow the penitents, then? The old priest thrust his jaw out pugnaciously, the Lady of Graves judges us not only on what we do, but what we endure. Those who suffer in this life are rewarded in the next. We Ustalavs have known this for generations. Very admirable, Salim said. The priest searched for any sign that he was being mocked, and upon finding none, slowly nodded. Yes, uh, well, it's rare to find a southerner who understands the value of forsaking worldly pleasures. Believe me, Salim said, I've forsaken plenty, but I didn't come here to discuss theology. Tell me of Mirasoy. Bah! the priest said and spat on his own floor. A magician and a minor noble who lives in a manse at the far end of the valley. He's been there for years. It's disgusting, the armor boy put in helpfully, using magic to avoid honest sweat and, and labor. Shut up, Percy, the priest said, yet he nodded at the sentiment. It's true, we have no love of wizards and witches here, yet it's still not a crime, and his business helps keep the village alive through hard times. Of late, however, the Lord has turned to darker arts. Graves have been disturbed, even within the grounds of the church. Now it was Selim's turn to grunt. Grave robbing from a church of Phrasma was bold, if not outright suicidal. And his creatures? You've seen them. Not personally, but the villagers who cart out his provisions or used to work in his house speak of moans and shambling forms and, and the stench of death. Salim nodded. And you'd send a mob of villagers to handle things? The priest bristled. Not alone. I would offer what magics I have, and my son would lead them. Ah, yes, uh, your son. Salim turned to the would-be warrior. Show me your hands, boy. Confused, Personoff did as he was told, holding them, palms out. Salim nodded. That's a fine suit of armor, boy, and it'll serve you well one day, but not yet. Now wait just a minute, the priest began. Salim silenced him with a raised finger. Calluses. Pardon? 
You may know penance, father, but I know war, and the calluses on this boy's hands are from chopping wood, not a sword hilt. The pattern's all wrong. He glanced back at Personov. You can put your hands down now, boy. Personov did. His father glowered. The boy will be fine, the old priest growled, and any wounds he suffers I'll heal, and his pain will buy credit with the goddess. As it happened, Selim knew precisely how little credit such suffering earned, yet he set that sentiment aside and decided to test out a suspicion that had been building. And what would the boy's mother think if he were killed? he asked. Don't you talk about his mother? Tiny drops of spit flew from the priest's lips to land halfway across the table. Seraphina is with the lady now, assisting in the judgment of souls. We should all be so fortunate. But da, uh, Personov began. Shut up, Percy. The priest put his head in hands. For a moment, no one said anything. At last, the priest looked up, his lined face appearing older than ever. What do you propose? he asked. Chapter 4 The Greatest Gift Selim slipped through the pools of shadow cast by branches and shrubs, trusting to his robes to break up his outline and make him invisible. Around him, the sounds of the night creatures were sporadic and tense, expectant. Connell slid along beside him, still wearing his peasant disguise. Selim had to give him credit. The Eidolon was surprisingly graceful. Ahead, the manor house stood huge and whitewashed at the end of the drive, its windows cavernous and dark save for three in an upper corner, which glowed with dim red light. As welcome as the shadows were in hiding their approach, Selim would have preferred to come during daylight. Yet he had wasted too much time trying to convince Father Adabold that Selim and Connell would do better alone than with his assistance. It was utterly stupid. The priest's little mob of peasants would likely scatter at the first sign of a walking corpse, and those who stayed would be slaughtered. Worse, if this Lord Mirasoy had advanced to making ghouls, then every farmhand who fell would rise again shortly to add to his army. The old priest and his son might have been more useful. The man claimed to have some magic yet, and the boy's armor was solid. Yet Selim had seen enough in the priest's eyes to know that it wasn't worth it. For all that Adabold talked of Farsman penitence, that hopeless splinter sect of ascetics and self-deniers, it wasn't religious fervor that made Adabold cut himself, or so eagerly throw himself and his only son into harm's way. It was grief for his dead wife, perhaps even the desire to join her early. Selim understood that all too well, but the boy still had plenty of years left, and suicidal warriors were a liability. In frustration, Selim had even attempted telling the old priest part of the truth, that Lord Mirasoy wasn't acting of his own accord, but rather had been enchanted by a cursed magic item. The priest would have none of it. I've seen souls corrupted by a shiny coin, or a bit of bare thigh. The nature of the temptation is unimportant. At last, once it became clear that even the prospect of killing a potentially innocent man wasn't enough to dissuade the priest, sorting good from evil is the lady's job, not ours. Salim had given in and agreed to join them in their attack at dawn, which is why he and Connell were out there in the dark with the sun still hours below the horizon. 
Salim caught the Eidolon's eye and nodded. The Eidolon had given him the layout of the house, and they'd decided on the servant's entrance around the side, rather than the grand double doors that faced the drive. It was time to break with the road and circle left. Something shot out from the brush near Salim's feet. Without thinking, because in combat acting was always faster than thinking, Salim drew his sword and slammed it down, pinning the scurrying shape to the earth. The creature squeaked once and expired. Mouse, he whispered, and withdrew his blade, rodent still clinging to its tip. He started to scrape it off against his boot, then stopped. The thing's rib cage was hollowed out, the flesh rotted away from tiny bones. Salim's sword had spitted it neatly, yet its back legs still kicked feebly. Another tiny form catapulted itself from the bushes. Before Salim could move, Connell leaped, springing forward with the grace of a cat, coming up with the undead rat in his hands. The Eidolon popped it into his mouth, bones crunching, then looked back at Salim and smiled. Perhaps the Eidolon would be more useful than Salim had expected. Connell swallowed and asked, Scouts? Salim nodded. It seemed Mirasoy wasn't totally without defenses. He slipped the twice-expired mouse from his blade and ground it under his boot heel before continuing on. The servant's entrance was unguarded. From the tree line, it was a solid hundred feet of open lawn to the steps up to the back porch, and then the door. Salim covered it at a run, body bent almost double, soared under his robes to avoid reflecting the moonlight. Connell paced him. At the door, they paused for a moment, listening. When nothing revealed itself, Salim nodded to Connell and thumbed the latch. Beyond lay a long hall, its wood-paneled walls lit only by the feeble shaft of moonlight from the open door, quickly disappearing into utter black. Salim smelled it first, the charnel stench of putrefaction. He thrust out an arm to stop Connell, but the eager Eidolon had already bounded into the corridor. A hand reached from the darkness. Salim moved. There was no time to let his eyes adjust, so he closed them and let his ears and nose guide him past the struggling Eidolon, deeper into the dark. Something rose up in front of him, grave, wet, and stinking, and he brought his sword out and down, feeling it cleave through cheese soft flesh. The thing gave a sigh and fell heavily into him, knocking him back into the wall and what felt like a tall table or stool. His free hand closed on a smooth, heavy object, and he brought it down hard on the thing in front of him, then spun to skewer a new attacker to his right. Back toward the entrance, Connell shouted something. They were stuck. Salim might be able to keep this up indefinitely, but there was no telling about the Eidolon, and they needed to move fast if they wanted to retain the element of surprise. Gritting his teeth, Salim reached out and touched the goddess. It was only a second, but it was enough. The Lady of Graves flowed through him in a black rush, as grotesque and violating in its own way as the creature putrefying on his feet. The energy passed through him and into the blade of his sword, and cold steel flared with ghostly incandescence, lighting the hallway. There were only three zombies, all dressed in the rotting finery that had probably once been the best clothes the little town could offer. Two lay at Salim's feet, his sword having severed the fragile magic that kept them animated. Down the hall, Connell struggled with the third. The Eidolon had dropped his disguise, and the long neck of his true form snaked around the back of the zombie's futilely chomping head, wrapping it like a boa constrictor. Long jaws locked around the undead creature's skull. There was a twist and a pop, 
and the last corpse dropped to the floor and lay still. Salim looked down at his offhand. The object he held was a stone bust of a young man, handsome in a vaguely arrogant and pupilist sort of way. He held it out to the Eidolon. Your boss? Connell nodded. Salim let the stone drop onto the corpse it had clubbed, then wiped his sword on the tattered linen shirt. He gestured down the hall. You know the house, he said, but don't leave my side unless I tell you to. Are we clear? Connell bobbed his head in what appeared to be genuine contrition and led the way deeper into the house. The manor was a shell. Though the pair passed several well-appointed sitting rooms with plush armchairs and walls of bookshelves or big bay windows overlooking the moonlit grounds, the layer of dust at the entrance to each argued that no one had bothered with them in some time. Connell avoided the shadowy front half of the house with its hangings and sculptures like the one Salim had appreciated, and instead led them through a series of narrow, more utilitarian corridors and staircases. Salim kept the light from the sword carefully banked and focused by a fold in his cloak. Yet nothing stirred in the dead house. If it weren't for the slight but ever-present scent of decay, Salim might have thought the place a summer home, packed away for storage while the Lord was away. At last they came to a door whose bottom edge was limbed with the same red light they'd seen from the road. The Eidolon's barely existent lips moved, and after a second, Salim realized Connell was attempting to mouth the word workshop. Salim nodded, and the Eidolon turned the knob. The door swung open. The room was large, the kind other lords might put to use as a ballroom or formal dining room for parties. The huge set of windows they'd observed earlier cast moonlight on the hardwood floor, Yet this illumination was overpowered by red lights that floated like swamp fire at the room's far end. The glow from these flying lanterns was soft and cast a flattering glow over the guests. No doubt that generous lighting would have kindled more than one midnight romance among the figures standing in a knot on the dance floor, except that the guests were dead. As one, the corpses turned to observe the newcomers. These two were still dressed in their funeral finery, some in the clothes of peasants and merchants, others in simple shrouds marked with the symbol of phrasma. There was no pattern to their features. Young and old, male and female, all stood with the awkward stances or constricted limbs of rigor mortis. A few had clearly been magically preserved for their funerals, and even now were only beginning to show the first signs of decomposition. Others were little more than fleshy skeletons, their bones tied crudely together with twine where tendons had fallen away. Behind them all, a man stood in the center of the lights, obscured from the chest down by a long dining table repurposed as a workbench. Stacks of books and bubbling alembics cluttered every surface, along with stranger implements and silvery surgical tools, with whose use Salim was thankfully unfamiliar. Though the man's face was the same as that on the stone head in the servant's hall, this version was older and so drawn and haggard as to resemble his zombie subjects. Above the face, a black crown of long thorns and vertical spikes pierced and pricked at his brow, holding back long, dark hair. Lord Mirasoy looked up from the book he'd been studying, yet his face barely registered the newcomer's presence. With one finger still marking his place in the text, he flicked his hand toward his uninvited guests. Kill them, he said, and went back to reading. The undead convocation shuffled forward. Connell growled, a deep, resonant rumble in surprising contrast to his usual excited tenor. Three-fingered talons flexed. No, 
Salim said, and put a hand on the Eidolon's shoulder. Connell looked at him in puzzlement, but Salim simply squeezed once and then released him. He stepped forward and drew his sword. The Eidolon might be better in a fight than he let on, but that wasn't the point. Salim had seen enough to tell that these people were no ghouls, no vampire spawn or vengeful wraiths. These were just farmers. Their corpses denied the slow transition into the same dirt they worked, forced to walk again at the whim of some spoiled lord. This wasn't a fight, nor even an execution. It was a funeral rite. The zombies approached, and Salim flowed like a river to meet them. The undead fought silently, and Salim did the same. The only sounds, the swirl of his robes and the wine-glass ring of steel sliding free of flesh, punctuated by the thumps of corpses hitting the floor. They moved to surround him, and he let them, whirling like a dervish, blade kissing them lightly in the only blessing he knew how to give. Rest, he thought, as a child's body slid from his sword, crumpling to the fouled floor. Rest. And then he stood alone. Around him, the hardwood was covered with bodies, splayed once more in the posture of death, which, while undignified, was so much more than they'd had a moment before. He looked down at the corpses and wished them well. At last, they had Mirasoy's attention. The Lord looked at them as if dazed, struggling to understand the mess of bodies staining his ballroom floor. Who are you? he asked. It's me, master. The Eidolon's voice was the whining, eager tone of a dog, hoping to regain its master's good graces. I've come back to help you. Please, don't be angry. Mirasoy ignored his creation, instead focusing on the dark-eyed man moving toward him, sword drawn. The Lord's voice didn't waver. And you? Just a friend, Salim said, one who's come to do you a favor. His sword lashed out. No! Connell's scream was grief bordering on pain. The Eidolon leaped for Salim's back, talons outstretched, but it was already too late. Salim's upward slash carved a shining arc toward Mirasoy's face. The blade missed the man's cheek by inches. With a tiny clink of metal on metal, Salim's sword caught one of the black, curving thorns of the crown and tore it free from the summoner's head. Mirasoy gasped at the sudden absence, or perhaps at the furrows the embedded thorns carved through his scalp. The crown fell to the table, and Salim followed it down, sword hilt gripped in both hands. Blade met crown with Salim's full weight behind it. There was a flash that wasn't so much light as its absence, and a high, keening wail that might have been a word, or a name. Then there were only two halves of a crown, the metal seeming to shrivel and fold in on itself like burning briars. The newly rusted slag clattered to the floor and lay still. Master! Connell was past Salim and gripping Lord Mirasoy's shoulders. The noble stood with head hung on his chest, looking ready to fall face first into his workbench. Slowly he raised his eyes. Connell? Yes. Yes, master. The Eidolon was weeping in earnest now, huge tears rolling down the reptilian face. Above them, the rune on his forehead glowed brighter than ever. I, I'm back now. I, I knew it was the crown that sent me away. Not you. And now you're free. Mirasoy straightened, shrugging off the Eidolon's steadying hands. Yes, well. He looked over to Salim. You do realize that's a priceless artifact you just destroyed. Salim marveled. Even half dead and surrounded by his own failure, the man exuded entitlement. Salim looked down at the corpses on the floor, then back at the noble. 
I'm sure we can arrange an accounting of debts. His voice was soft. The summoner followed Salim's gaze down, then swallowed. No, that won't be necessary. Clearly the crown needed to be destroyed. You have my thanks. Salim inclined his head, unconvinced. Perhaps the crown wasn't as responsible for these atrocities as Connell wanted to think. He opened his mouth to say something, then stopped. There was a new sound. Salim saw the other two pick up on it as well. A low, muttering hum. Voices. Salim moved swiftly to the window. Out in the darkness, a line of torches snaked down the manor house's long drive. Damn. Apparently, Father Adebold was no longer interested in waiting until dawn. Salim turned back to Mirasoy. We need to get out of here. In two minutes, their families, he gestured to the corpses on the floor, are going to burn this place to the ground, and you're going to let them. Oh, the noble's lip twitched toward a sneer. Salim raised his sword suggestively. Oh, Lord Mirasoy said again this time with considerably less vigor. Well, you see, that may be something of a problem. He raised a hand and gestured to his waist. Oh, master, Connell's voice was horrified. What have you done? And now Salim saw it. The various beakers and sealed containers on the work table didn't stand alone. Below the rumpled blouse, several thick tubes snaked out of Mirasoy's abdomen and into the vessels and retorts on the table a steady stream of black and red fluid cycling through them. Once more, the summoner ignored his servant and spoke to Salim. This time, he looked almost embarrassed. The crown, he said. It had several suggestions on how I might improve my longevity. Lichdom. Salim understood now why the man looked so hollow. He almost spat but stopped himself for fear of hitting one of the corpses. You were trying to turn yourself undead. Not me, the crown. Salim didn't care. Can you stop it, reverse it? Almost certainly, Mirasoy said. But it'll take time. Days. Behind Salim, the villagers were drawing closer. He could hear individual voices in the rumble of the mob. We don't have days. Lord Mirasoy ventured a tentative smile, greasy and anxious. If you'll allow it, my manor has certain defenses which... No. You've done these people enough harm already, Salim thought hard. Can you teleport? Move this whole setup somewhere else with magic? The noble grimaced. My studies of late have been focused on other matters. Clearly. Salim sized up the various tubes that nosed into Mirasoy's clothing like hungry worms. And if I were to just pull those out, then I would die, likely in excruciating pain. Works for me, thought Salim, but he knew the Eidolon would never stand for it. Besides, there was no telling what sort of backlash the expiring spell might generate. Beyond the window, dozens of feet crunched on gravel. I have a suggestion. Both Mirasoy and Salim turned to look at Connell. The Eidolon was holding up a hand as if waiting to be called on. Salim nodded. I have a suggestion, the Eidolon said again. With one three-fingered hand, he reached up and touched the amulet hanging from his serpentine neck. And then there was no Connell, 
only a second Mirasoy. Salim understood immediately. Connell, he began. They're looking for the master, the Eidolon said firmly. If we give them one, maybe they'll go home. They're a mob, Salim pressed, throat suddenly tight. Even if they think Mirasoy's gone, they'll burn this place down anyway. Then you'll have to stop them, the Eidolon held out a hand. Goodbye, Salim. Thank you. The hand hung there, unmoving. After an eternity, Salim stepped forward and took it. They shook. Connell looked to Mirasoy. It's good to have you back, master. Then the Eidolon walked out of the room and was gone. Silence reigned as the two men stood looking at the door where the second Mirasoy had disappeared. Finally, Salim spoke. If you live a thousand years, he said slowly, you would still be unworthy of that love. What? Salim's glance flicked sideways to the noble. That sacrifice for you. Mirasoy seemed genuinely puzzled. It's an Eidolon, he said. I made it to protect me. When it's gone, I'll make another. Salim stared at him. Outside, the crowd roared. Three empty cups stood at parade rest on the wooden table. A fourth, only halfway drained, stood before them, the officer addressing its troops. Salim took another drink. Around him, the familiar buzz of the clever endeavor continued as usual, a dozen conversations that never happened, between people who were never here and had never met. This time, no one was looking at Salim. That suited him fine. The wood between his elbows was stained, dark with spilled wine. Salim grimaced and set his mug down on top of the splotch, but the cup wasn't quite big enough to hide it from view. Connell hadn't screamed. He hadn't made a sound at all. By the time Salim reached the front door of the manor house, passing corpses which lay motionless without the crown's animating touch, the worst was over. The bravest of the mob was still hacking away with hoes and scythes, while others shouted encouragement. At some point, someone tore away the amulet to reveal the Eidolon's true form, which Father Adabold loudly proclaimed a sign that the noble had been a monster all along. And then finally, it was over. With a last gasp from the crowd, the Eidolon's body disappeared. Only the bloody stain on the gravel drive remained. Still giddy with the ease of their victory, the mob might have indeed charged the manor had Salim not chosen that point to reveal himself. Stepping forth to address Father Adabold by name, Salim announced that the evening's festivities were over and that he dealt with the rest of the Lord's creatures himself. A few of the mob, drunk on blood, had yelled abuse. Salim raised his still glowing sword and the newfound bravery dissipated. With Father Adabold at its head, the crowd turned and made its way back toward town. In no time at all, Salim was alone in the driveway. Just him and the stain Connell had left behind. A single torch, dropped by a villager, still sputtered in the dirt. Salim bent down and picked it up. He looked up toward the manor window where the red light still played. He could finish things. Mirasoy had perverted the corpses of innocence and attempted to do the same to himself. Salim had executed men for less. He could set the torch against one of the tapestries in the entrance hall and let the whole place disappear. Instead, he had opened his hand and let the torch drop 
and now he was here. Salim drank deep, draining the last of the mug. The wine at the bottom had an unpleasant copper taste, and he looked down to see blood pooling there, mixing with the dregs. He put fingers to his nose, and they came away red. He sighed. You have a terrible way of announcing yourself, say Annan. The creature across the table was neither male nor female. Its pale skin is smooth and inhuman as an alabaster statue. Behind its shoulders, great wings that were half feathers, half shadow, flexed once, and then furled tightly in the dingy confines of the bar. Gray cloth, like funeral shrouds, wrapped its waist and chest. Salim wiped his bloody upper lip with the back of his hand. You want to tell me why you sent him to me? The angel smiled. What do you mean? Don't play coy. Salim put down his empty mug and leaned back, crossing his arms. Your boss deals with more complex judgments than Mirasoy's little change of heart on a daily basis. If you hadn't sent me in, the mob would eventually have made it through those zombies and killed him, thus removing any reason for the Lady of Graves to take an interest. Many innocents would have died, the angel observed. And since when does your mistress give a flying fig about that? Salim held up two fingers to the barman, who appeared almost immediately with two more mugs. Thank you, said Sayanin. But I don't drink. Who said one of these was for you? Salim pulled both drinks close. The angel watched him. You're an excellent hunter, Salim. Your skill does you credit, but you still have much to learn. White lips twitched higher, the smile becoming almost beatific. Connell did something very brave today, out of love and devotion to his friend. Who didn't deserve it? Salim growled. Does it matter? The angel's big eyes bored into Salim's. Is the Eidolon's sacrifice any less admirable because of it? Salim laughed sharply. <laughs> is that what this is all about? Teaching me to take pride in my work, even if I don't have any choice in the matter? He showed his teeth. Haven't I learned enough about duty? About sacrifice? Sayanin shook its head, half sad, half bemused. Maybe not, it said at last. But don't worry, you will. Just what? Salim began, but the angel was gone. Salim stared at the chair where the angel had been, then down at the stain on the table. A mug in either hand. He began to drink in earnest. There you go. Do pop over to the site. I'll put links on to all the Pathfinder books as well and that website. And do drop by James's site as well. That old rock star that he is. <laughs> Next up is Everything by our Morgan Sletter. Morgan, sir. Hello and welcome to another installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Morgan Saletta. Coming up, we've got light sails, nuclear pulse propulsion, and busted ramjets, not to mention my top ten list of favorite spaceships from science fiction, film, and television. But first I want to make a major announcement. On October 11th at 12.36 p.m., my partner Kat gave birth to a baby boy, christened Aurelian Sterling Devlin Saletta, and the ongoing transition to becoming a responsible parent means this installment was quite delayed. Like every parent, I hope the future holds wonderful things for my baby boy. But I'll put a true space colony, lunar settlement, or Mars base at the top of my wish list for that future. In my last installment, 
I put considerable focus on the artists, as well as some scientists and engineers, who shaped both popular visions of how spacecraft should look and function, as well as actual spacecraft design. I ended with a brief discussion of that most iconic of spacecraft designs, the flying saucer, and its ubiquitous presence in popular culture since 1947, when pilot Kenneth Arnold reported seeing a formation of saucer-like craft flying near Mount Rainier. As the flying saucer captured the public imagination, sightings quite literally skyrocketed, and the silver screen fed this public interest in aliens and UFOs. At the same time, the world's two superpowers were squaring off for what would become the Cold War and the space race. I'm not going to cover the history of the space race. It's been much better told in books, documentaries, and films than I could ever do. Instead, I'm going to talk about some ways we might start actually exploring the solar system or sending a probe to another star, and eventually, perhaps, sending a manned mission to another solar system. During the last half century of spaceflight, there is one thing that has changed very little, and that is how rockets work. Give or take this or that fuel and some high-tech tweaks, the basics remain the same. And one thing that really needs to advance before we can imagine human beings exploring the solar system, let alone make a mission to the stars, are propulsion systems. So it seems fitting that in today's installment, I focus on some of the conceptual propulsion systems that have been proposed as ways to explore the solar system and reach out to the stars. So, as I mentioned in the intro, I'll be talking about light sails, nuclear pulse propulsion, and the Bussard ramjet. Interestingly, it is the solar sail, or more generically, the light sail, which is both the first of these conceptual spacecraft to be proposed, as well as the first to see actual fruition. I've spoken of Russian visionary Konstantin Tsiolkovsky in several installments. He is considered one of the fathers of modern spaceflight, and in addition to his speculations on space stations, space elevators, inspired by the then-just-built Eiffel Tower, in the early 1920s, Tsiolkovsky also proposed, together with another Russian engineer by the name of Friedrich Zander, that, using tremendous mirrors of very thin sheets, a spacecraft could use the pressure of sunlight to attain cosmic velocities. In 1929, and independently, J.D. Bernal, of whom I have also spoken in the context of space habitats, wrote, A form of space sailing might be developed which used the repulsive effect of the sun's rays instead of wind. A space vessel, spreading its large metallic wings acres in extent to the full, might be blown to the limit of Neptune's orbit. Then, to increase speed, it would tack, close-hauled, down the gravitational field, spreading full sail again as it rushed past the sun. This is a truly prescient account of what scientist and science fiction writer Gregory Benson and his brother Jim would later call a sundiver maneuver. In his book Centauri Dreams, Imagining and Planning Interstellar Exploration, Paul Gister gives a fascinating history of the idea of the light sail. In 1951, an engineer named Carl Wiley, writing under the name Russell Saunders, penned a piece in John W. Campbell's Astounding Magazine in which he proposed a parachute-like solar sail 80 kilometers in diameter. The title of the article was Clipper Ships of Space. And while it was not until 1958 that a scientific journal, Jet Propulsion, published an article on solar sailing by IBM researcher Richard Garwin, science fiction writers were much quicker to recognize the potential of the solar sail and include the technology in their writings. In 1960, Galaxy Magazine published a story by Cordwainer Smith, the pseudonym of Dr. Paul Leinbarger, a noted East Asian scholar and U.S. Army intelligence officer. The story, entitled The Lady Who Sailed the Soul, was a romance of sorts set thousands of years in the future. 
featuring Helen America and Mr. Gray No More, Smith writes, Out of it all, two things stood forth, their love and the image of the great sails, tissue metal wings with which the bodies of people finally fluttered out to the stars. Cordwain or Smith's science fiction works largely take place within a unified future history in which sail ships carry frozen colonists to the stars and populate the galaxy. In 1962, Jack Vance also wrote a story called Sail 25, which featured solar sails. One can imagine he might have been inspired by his own experience sailing on the San Francisco Bay. A year later, Pierre Boulle, author of La Planète des Singes, or Planet of the Apes, was also captivated by the elegance and grace of solar sails, and in Planet of the Apes, has his two chimpanzee characters taking a leisurely vacation aboard their sailing craft when they discover a message in a bottle of sorts which details the main story. Despite these early stories, the two science fiction writers most credited with popularizing the idea of solar sailing are Arthur C. Clarke and Paul Anderson. In 1964, both published stories independently entitled Sunjammer. Clarke's story, first published in Boy's Life, features the excitement of a yacht race in the solar system, while Paul Anderson's story, published in Analog under the pseudonym Winston P. Sanders, the Sunjammers ply the trade routes between the asteroid belt and the Earth. Until last year, despite several successes deploying solar sails, no solar sails had been successfully used as a primary propulsion system for a spacecraft, although the Mariner 10 mission used solar pressure on its solar panels to make a small course correction without using precious fuel. On the 21st of May 2010, however, the Japanese space agency JAXA launched the Icaros spacecraft, which successfully deployed a 200-square-meter sail and began a three-year voyage to visit the sun. Solar sails have also been proposed as a possible means of propulsion for an interstellar mission, in most cases propelled by a very powerful laser beam. Elegant, graceful, and romantic as solar sails are, there are times when you want a bit more oomph, and there's nothing like a nuclear explosion out your tailpipe to really give you, well, oomph. To those who haven't heard of Project Orion, the idea of using a nuclear detonation to power a spacecraft might sound like a one-way ticket to the pearly gates, but Arthur C. Clarke and Freeman Dyson didn't think so. The basic idea of the Orion project is to mount a spacecraft on a large pusher plate, and in the case of a manned spacecraft, some very large shock absorbers. A series of nuclear explosives would be jettisoned behind the spacecraft with the explosion and blast wave providing the vehicle propulsion. The project studied many vehicle sizes, ranging from a small crewed vessel to an eight-ton Super Orion, which could have housed a small city's population and therefore have served as a space arc. It is estimated that the top velocity for an Orion-type ship using thermonuclear explosives would be eight to 10% of the speed of light, easily enough to consider missions to nearby stars. The idea apparently originated at Los Alamos with a proposal by Stanislaw Ulam, but the actual project began in 1958, led by Ted Taylor and Freeman Dyson. A remarkable 2003 documentary entitled To Mars by A-Bomb, with commentary by Arthur C. Clarke and Freeman Dyson, can be found on YouTube. Included in the video is footage of a model test flight being propelled by conventional explosives and successfully demonstrating that pulse propulsion was feasible. And feasible using technology available already in the 1950s and 60s. Of course, the primary problem with the idea was its reliance on nuclear explosions and the attendant fallout if the ship was launched from Earth, and it is largely accepted that the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963 spelled an end for the project. 
Nevertheless, it remains the only proposed propulsion system for which the technology exists which could feasibly reach a nearby star within a human lifespan. And to put things in perspective, while thousands die every year from air pollution from coal plants and cars, the atmospheric launch of an Orion-type ship was calculated to lead to only a few extra deaths per year. But ultimately, fear of radiation ended the project. But that didn't spell the end of the idea. In the 1970s, the British Interplanetary Society undertook a design proposal for a probe to Barnard's star called Project Daedalus, using clean fusion explosions to propel the ship. And while controlled fusion continues to elude us, remaining just out of reach over the technological horizon, there is a new study underway by the British Interplanetary Society and the Tau Zero Foundation, which is taking into account new and projected technological innovations. Over at the excellent blog, The Next Big Future, Brian Wang and his team have done a very interesting job at looking at how to reduce fallout from an Earth-based Orion launch to an acceptable or negligible level, including using conventional explosives for the initial boost and a North Pole launch. But they've also come up with a really interesting variant, which would have no fallout at all. They call it the Nuclear Orion Home Run Shot, but science fiction writer Carl Schroeder, over at his blog, has given it a better name, the Verne Gun, after Jules Verne's Moon Gun, described in his 1865 novel from the Earth to the Moon. In this version, an underground nuclear explosion, all fallout contained, is used to launch up to 280,000 tons of materials. Of course, because of the g-forces involved, humans and sensitive electronics are out, but with a couple of launches, everything from orbital habitats to terawatts of solar power to a space telescope big enough to visualize the surface of an alien world go from pie in the sky to reality. Now, that seems like a pretty good use of the old Nevada test site and a couple bombs from our Cold War stockpile. Of course, as with solar sails, readers of science fiction may well recognize nuclear pulse propulsion from any number of books, but two in particular stand out in my mind, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell's 1985 Footfall and Neil Stevenson's 2008 work Anathem. Anathem is a wonderfully strange work set in an alternate universe. I won't give much more away than that. But there is a great scene where one of the protagonists, a kind of monk, discovers the arrival of an Orion-type ship in orbit around his sun by the means of a camera obscura and a pinhole projection of the sun inside a darkened room. Footfall, which I've mentioned in earlier installments, is a story of alien invasion in which the alien fifth are ultimately defeated by an Orion-type ship built secretly by the U.S. government. And Footfall gives me the perfect segue into the next and last propulsion system I'm going to discuss. I think it would be fair to say that of those who know what a busted ramjet is, most of those first came across the concept in the works of Larry Niven. In Footfall, the fifth arrive in our solar system aboard one, and they feature frequently in his known space works. While the works of Niven are where I and many others first came across the concept of ramjets, I should mention that the first author to include one in his work is apparently Paul Anderson in his 1967 short story, To Outlive Eternity, which was later novelized as Tau Zero. The basic idea of a busted ramjet is that instead of carrying its own fuel, a huge limiting factor, a spaceship might capture the thinly spread hydrogen that wisps between the stars in a giant electromagnetic funnel or scoop, compressing the hydrogen into a controlled fusion reaction and channeling the thrust out the rear of the vessel. There are, of course, many major technological hurdles to overcome before a busted ramjet could ever be built, and it may be that they are never achievable. One of the issues with ramjets is that they first need to be accelerated to a speed high enough that the fuel is coming in at a sufficient rate for combustion, 
In many of Niven's stories, he uses an initial stage in which the spacecraft is first accelerated using a light sail propelled by a laser to reach sufficient speed for the ramjet to take over. In A Gift from Earth, published in 1968, Niven proposed another means of accelerating a ramjet to sufficient speeds, a linear accelerator. This is how he describes it. Interstellar ram scoop robot number 143 left Juno at the end of a linear accelerator. Coasting toward interstellar space, she looked like a huge metal insect, makeshift and hastily built. Yet, except for the contents of her cargo pad, she was identical to the last 40 of her predecessors. Her nose was a ram scoop generator, a massive, heavily armored cylinder with a large orifice in the center. Along the sides were two big fusion motors, aimed 10 degrees outward, mounted on oddly jointed metal structures like the folded legs of a praying mantis. The hull was small, containing only a computer and an in-system fuel tank. The ram scoop generator came on. The conical field formed rather slowly, but when it had stopped oscillating, it was 200 miles across. The ship began to drag a little, a very little, as the cones scooped up interstellar dust and hydrogen. She was still accelerating. Her in-system tank was idle now and would be for the next 12 years. Her foodstuff would be the thin stuff between the stars. Of course, we have no way at the present of making magnetic fields hundreds of kilometers or miles across, and as I've mentioned before, we have as yet to master controlled contained fusion. Another big problem is that since Bussard first published his paper, Galactic Matter and Interstellar Flight, in 1960, it has become apparent that interstellar hydrogen is spread thinner than thought at the time. But speculative engineers are still hopeful, and maybe one day, busted ramjets will send humans to the stars. Which brings me almost to the end of this installment. Last time, I promised you a top ten list of my favorite spaceships from science fiction, and let me tell you, compiling this was no easy job. To make it easier, I chose spacecraft only from science fiction television and film, and I also limited myself to only one spaceship from the Star Wars series. There are so many awesome ships in those movies, they'd need a list of their own. I've also given extra points to a ship if the design was influential. In other words, if lots of other prop designers made variants of it. And so, here goes, my top ten list. At number ten, I've put the Valley Forge from David Trumbull's 1972 film Silent Running, an environmentally themed film which Dennis Lane discussed in Film Talk on Starship Sofa number 188. This spacecraft is truly huge and features four geodesic domes housing what remains of Earth's natural biosphere. The design has remained popular and influential. Stock footage was regularly used in the original Galactica to represent the agro-vessel, and a beefed-up look-alike is featured in the new Galactica as the botanical cruiser, and the massive Cloud 9 also features a huge biodome. At number 9, I've put the Yamato from the Japanese anime series Space Battleship Yamato, which was later adapted and Americanized in the series Star Blazers, first broadcast in 1979. I hadn't watched any of this series since it captivated my friends and I in grade school, but I downloaded some the other day, and it's aged well. That flying World War II battlecruiser is still cool as all hell, especially when it lets loose with a deadly wave motion gun. This was the first serialized anime series with an overall story arc to reach a popular audience in the English-speaking world, later paving the way for Robotech, Cowboy Bebop, and many others. At number 8, I've put the TARDIS. I'll be frank, I came to Doctor Who pretty late. The 1970s reruns on TV didn't capture my jaded young American eyes. But let's face it, the TARDIS is just plain cool. 
the police box come time and relative dimension in spaceship has been redesigned, or at least the impossibly large interior has at any rate. But one of the most remarkable redesigns was the steampunk Vernesque retrofit by Galactica and Caprica designer Richard Hudelin for the 1996 Doctor Who film, particularly because the aesthetic has greatly influenced that of the new Doctor Who series. At number seven, I put the Planet Express from Futurama. Look, I think Futurama is the best science fiction comedy ever, although I might have to give it a tie with the Hitchhikers series, and Red Dwarf would be a close second. But the ship Planet Express is so slick, it looks like it just blasted off from a drive through burger stand with a milkshake and an order of fries. At number six, I put Starbug from the Red Dwarf series. Let's face it, life aboard the interstellar garbage bin the Red Dwarf would be pretty grim without the cute little Starbug to crash on alien planets and fart around in space for four of the funniest spaceship crew ever. At number five, I put the UDL-4 Cheyenne dropship from James Cameron's 1986 Aliens. It looks real, it's badass, and it's got kick-ass marines on board. This is part Vietnam gunship, part Apache helicopter, all cobbled together to look like it's an extension of modern warfare, an aesthetic Cameron also used to great effect in Avatar. At number four, I put the Firefly from Joss Whedon's series of the same name. While it may have been short-lived, it left us with this delightful little ship. But I'll admit that what I love most about the ship is the captain and crew. At number three, I put the Valkyrie fighter. This unbelievable piece of mecha first appeared in the 1982 Jap-anime series Macross, which was adapted into the Americanized Robotech series. It's an F-14 look-alike that can transform into a humanoid robot called the Batroid Mode, or also fly in a hybrid form, known as the Jerwalk Mode. These things are just plain awesome, and predate the Hasbro Transformer line by two years. As far as I can tell, it's the first science fiction example of a transforming mecha. As a boy, the Valkyrie was the coolest thing ever, and certainly more interesting than girls, but not for long. At number two, I've put the NCC-1701, better known as the Enterprise. Okay, space empires come in two flavors, good and bad. If it's the good empire, there's no better place to be than aboard the Enterprise. It's got phasers, transporters, all the comforts of home including tea that tastes like tea, and you can make number two jokes to your heart's content. It doesn't get much better than this. But if you live in the evil empire kind of galaxy, say in a galaxy far, far away, let's face it, there's only one ship, and it's mine number one, and that's the Millennium Falcon. I mean, it's a jalopy of a spacecraft, but it's got rotating gun turrets top and bottom, the coolest cockpit ever, a hidden floor compartment to hide in when you get tractor beamed into a Death Star, room to learn to sword fight in with a lightsaber, and, let's face it, it's got the coolest pilot-cum-gunslinger ever, who, yes he did pull first, damn it, and a hell of a cool co-pilot too. So, there you have it, my top ten list of spaceships. But I'll give a special shout-out to every single one of artist Chris Foss's spacecraft that adorned the covers of science fiction books in the 1970s and 80s. For a much better list than mine, including interviews with designers, check out Martin Anderson's Top 75 Spaceships in Movie and TV at www.denofgeek.com. It's awesome. And so with that, this concludes this installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony. <laughs> Thank you very much. Morgan, you're a little star there. Thank you, sir.
Next up is Blow the Cobwebs from Your Mind There. Gonna play a song by No One Zero. Classum is probably rock hard rock. We have Mike, Matt and Brandon in that band. They hail from Indianapolis. Been together three years. Matt got in touch with us just last night and says, Tony, we've got this song. Rock it to earth. Do you fancy playing it? Well, you know what I mean? Come on, man. So, I'll put a link on to No One Zero. Go over their Facebook page. All their tunes are there. If you like this, do let us know.
There you go. Big thank you to No One Zero. Like I say, I'll put a link onto their site. Matt, thank you so much. Getting in touch. Well, that is show two fifteen. Hope you've enjoyed it. Nice bumper show. Until next week. Just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.